Good that you're there. Good to see me. I don't know. Um, Glad to be here. My name is Nate Jones. I'm the family pastor here, and I have the blessing of preaching this morning um, in our series entitled Meeting with God. Meeting with God. Um, Over the last two weeks, we've looked at um, a couple different things. First week, if you remember back, we looked at meeting with God in our shame, and we walked through the story of Adam and Eve, and um, after they chose to eat of the fruit of the tree that God demanded them not to eat of, they recognized their nakedness, the Bible says, and they were filled with shame, and they attempted to cover themselves, if you remember the story, to cover themselves with fig leaves and hide from the Lord. And so the question we've been asking is, where is God in our shame? And the answer to that story was that God did not leave them. In fact, he pursued them. He came and looked for them. And so in our shame, God actually is present. He pursues us. And then the second question we've been asking every week is, what does God do in our shame? And the answer is that he provides. If you remember the story, he provided um, skins for them, animal skins to cover their shame, alluding to the sacrifice. Something had to die to cover their sin, to cover their shame. And that sacrifice covered them, covered their nakedness, covered their shame. And we know that later he would provide the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus Christ to cover our shame, right? Last week, we looked at meeting with God in our doubt, and we looked at the story of Moses and his turbulent life of running from God, um, turbulent life of sin, and the point where he doubted God's call on his life to, to rescue the people of Israel out of bondage, and so he doubted his call. He did not have the um, ability, he said, to even speak. And in our doubt, or in Moses' doubt, we saw that God is the one who actually pursued him through the burning bush and pursued his call. And so he, just like the story with Adam and Eve, it's the same with Moses. In our doubt, where is God? He is present. He is pursuing us. And what did God provide? Well, God provided Moses to the people of Israel to rescue them out of bondage. What did he provide for Moses? Well, he provided Aaron, a companion, to go with him in his calling. And so likewise, in our doubt, in our lack of confidence... Where is God? The answer is, he does not leave us. He remains present. He pursues us. And what does God do in our doubt? He provides. He gives us assurances to strengthen our faith in what he has called us to do. So there's a common theme every week in this. Where is God in our blank? What does he provide in our blank? Well, today we're looking at meeting God in our sin. Meeting God in our sin. It's a common theme we're going to find today as with the past few weeks but we want to look today at, the, at, at our sin. We want to look at where is God in our sin. So I want to invite you, if you're here with us, to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to look at one of the greatest men who ever lived. And the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. Yet this man, I'm glad he's in the Bible because it, in a lot of ways it makes me feel better, doesn't it? Those of you who know the story, we're going to look at this morning, but even this man who is after God's own heart wrote many of the Psalms that we read in the scriptures. This man committed grave, grand sins, and in his sins, where was God? And I hope this morning that as we look at the life of David, that, uh, that you'll realize too where God is in your sins. So let's pray this morning and ask the Lord's blessing on our time in the reading of his word. So Lord, we come to you this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it leads us in all truth. We pray, God, as your, that your spirit would, would do that as well this morning, that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, you'd, you'd teach us. Lord, you remind us today again of the gospel, 
that you are with us, so you never leave us or forsake us. Lord, you pursue us even in our sin. So, Lord, as we open your word this morning, as I preach, God, would you speak through me? Would you speak through the reading of your word today? Give us ears to hear what it is you're saying to us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. One of my favorite authors I love to read, especially in college, he's one of my favorite authors, is A.W. Tozer. If you've ever read A.W. Tozer, there's just, he has all these little statements that are just like, wow. In fact, he has a whole book called Gems from Tozer. It's a whole book of sayings and, and quotes that he has. And one that his most popular ones is one that says this. He says, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And many of us have an incorrect view of God. It's why it's important that we be in the scriptures. It's why it's important that we come to church and we're part of a faith community because we need to be reminded from one another and from the word. We need constant reminders, if you're me, if you're like me, of who God is because our views of God can, can be skewed and we need constant reminding to come back to who he really is. If we have an incorrect view of God, it can really take us down a path that's very dangerous. We can get incorrect theology. We can teach people the wrong things. And so it's very important that we have the correct view of God and we get that from his word. And so this is why it's important to be in his word every day. That's why it's important that we gather together around the teaching of his word because we need to have the correct view of God. So I want to ask you this question this morning. Wherever you are, I want you to think through this. When you sin... When you sin, what is your mental image of God in your sin? Think of your thoughts. Think of where you tend to go and sin, the temptations that you tend to fall for, the, the dark things that are in your life that you fail in, those sins. What's your mental image of God in those sins? If you're like me, uh, my view of God, especially as a young man, because um, I'm not young anymore, I'm 40, so I'm on that. I can now say I'm an old man, right? Some of you are like, that's ridiculous. I'd love to be 40 again. Um, but I, I'm old. My kids remind me of this every day. I heard an amen. <clears throat> that's not good. If you're anything like me, my mental image of God when I think of my sin it tends to go something like this. I recognize my sin I'm going this way in my sin, and I, I know this is wrong. And so I turn from that. I repent, and I know this is wrong, and I turn from my sin. My mental image of God is something like this, is that he's really far away from me. And not just that he's really far away from me, but that he is almost this direction, turning back and looking and shaking his head at me in disappointment, just kind of like a, and he's walking away from me. That's my mental image of God, that in my sin, God is disappointed in me, and he's shaking his head. And then my mind goes here. I know that God loves me, because his word tells me that, but I, my mind starts to go to the idea that it's not so much that he loves me, but more like he tolerates me. You know what I mean? He's so disappointed in me that the only reason he really loves me, it's, it's almost as if... Um, He's got an eye roll. You know what I'm talking about, an eye roll? Now, my daughter does this, okay? She's eight, but she's already started the eye roll. You know what I'm talking about? 
If you need to zoom in the camera and get this on uh, from people who are watching online, you can do that. Zoom in on my face. It looks something like this. You know what I'm talking about? The eye roll. It's as if to say, I'm just annoyed with you. The eye roll. And so when I almost hear God saying something like, the eye roll, and then, okay, I guess I did write in John 3.16, I love the world. So I guess I have to love you. So fine, I forgive you, Nate. Right? This is my view of God a lot of times. In my sin, it's one where I turn and I find him walking away, looking back, shaking his head, and I roll and saying, all right, I guess I have to since I said I did. I love you, Nate. I roll. Okay? I don't know if you're like me, but that's how I feel. That's my view of God. And can I tell you, I'm going to give you the end of the sermon right here. That's an incorrect view of God. It's an incorrect view of God. It is not biblical. But it's where we go to. Now, no matter how long you've been a Christian. Now, I said as a young man, I, I went this way. I still go this way. This is why I constantly need to read the scriptures. Constantly need to be reminded by some of you that that is not how God is. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at an Old Testament story. But we're also going to look at a New Testament example. To give us a correct view of who God is in our sin. The first one is the story of David. We're going to look at that in just a moment. And the second one is the story of the prodigal son. Okay, so let's jump right in to the story of David. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read this to you. You can follow along. We'll stop at verse 5 and catch up. Verse 1. In the spring of the year, in the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about this woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers in and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Stop there. Sin will always take you down a path that you never intended to go. Sin will always take you down a path that you never intended to go. In this story, we're going to see David, in chapter 11, breaks by my count at least five of the Ten Commandments in one chapter of the Bible. Now, if you were to wake David up that morning and say, hey, David, something's going to happen today. You're going to be tempted to break five commandments of the ten. Half of them you will break today. Be careful. He would have been on guard. problem was he wasn't. He didn't have that voice to tell him that. And so he ended up breaking five of the ten commandments. He had never dreamed that he would do something like this, but it started very small, a small temptation. See, David should have been leading his army, yet he remained back alone. We see that in verse 1. Verse 2, we see David first sins by lusting after Bathsheba as she bathes. Verse 3, David inquires about her, and he learns that she's actually married already. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, who is Uriah? This is not just some random soldier named Uriah. Who? Uriah, who's that guy? David knew exactly who Uriah the Hittite was. In fact, if you wanted to do a great Bible study... 
just a few chapters later, 2 Samuel chapter 23, there's amazing stories about David's mighty men. He had 30 men that were amazing soldiers. These were the most dedicated soldiers to him. Uriah the Hittite was one of these 30. In other words, Uriah was this valiant warrior who, by the way, was not even an Israelite. He was somebody who, who loved Israel, the people of God, so much that he left his tribe and went and became part of the Israel, Israel tribe. And even before David was king, he was one of David's men. He was loyal to this king. That's Uriah. So this is someone David most likely would have known. He dedicated his life to the king. That's who Uriah was. He was faithful to the king, and we'll see that played out here in a few verses. But David, in verse 4, lets his lust control him, and he abuses his power of king. Bathsheba didn't really have a choice here, did she? When the king summons somebody, you go. So he abuses his power as king, and what does he do? He covets his neighbor's wife. He covets what his neighbor has. He breaks another one of the Ten Commandments. In verse 5, we see Bathsheba becomes pregnant. Uh-oh, now we're in trouble. So in five verses, David's just walking on his balcony, and now he's got a problem. He breaks another command, you shall not commit adultery. See, sin always takes you down a path you never intended to go. Always. It promises a lot of things. It promises fulfillment, satisfaction, but it will never deliver. It always ends in death and destruction. Always. So David's in trouble. So what does he do? Look at verse 6 through 13. David attempts to cover up his sin. We saw this with Adam, with Adam and Eve. It's a, it's a natural response for us to try and cover up our sin, make up for it ourselves. David does the same thing. It's his version of sewing fig leaves together to cover up his sin. He attempts this by himself. Look at verse 6. So David went, uh, sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. I want you to notice something here. David does not come clean with his sin. He does not admit what he has done to Uriah. He bold-faced lies to him, doesn't he? He summons for Uriah, and Uriah's like, well, what am I here for? You've taken me from the battlefield. What would you like, my king? Oh, I just invited you here to see how the war was going. I want your opinion on Joab. And while you're home, why don't you just kind of go home? Chill out with your wife a little bit. Okay. So here he is breaking another of the commandments, that he is bearing false witness. So he hopes that Uriah would go be with his wife and all this will go away. He even sends him a little present from the king. Here, here, just enjoy yourself. Here's something from me. He's trying to cover up what he has done. Make amends for what he has done. Verse 9, I want you to notice what Uriah does. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Do you see how Uriah refuses to even go into his house? He sleeps at the door of the king, even then protecting his king. Isn't that amazing? His loyalty to protect the king takes priority even over his own house. Verse 10. And when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and 
to eat and drink and lay with my wife, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah gives his reasoning. He will not enjoy the pleasures of his life while his fellow soldiers are out in the battlefield. Uriah continues to do what is honorable. So what does David do? Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today. Also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remains in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate at his presence and he drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servant of his Lord, but he did not go down into his house. You see the depth that David is once again trying to get Uriah to do something to the point where he even gets him drunk on purpose. And while Uriah is drunk with wine, he still does what is honorable. Samuel here in writing this is trying to get us to see the difference between David, a king after God's own heart, and Uriah, a soldier. Uriah is loyal, David is not. Uriah does what is honorable, David has done what is sinful. You see, he's comparing these two men. The contrast here is striking. So David has to do something else. Uriah will not do what he thinks he should do. Sin always takes you down a path you never intended to go. If you were to wake David up that morning, tell him in a couple days you're going you're gonna to murder somebody, he would have never agreed with that. But sin always takes you down a path you never intended to go. Look what David does here for the sake of time. I'm going to summarize for you. Scripture says that in the morning, this is verse 14 through 25, David came up with another idea. And since Uriah would not play his part in the cover-up, David would tell Joab to put Uriah in the front lines in battle. And if you want to look at, some, look at verse 14 real quick. This, is, this is, shows you how sin blinds you. You don't even see the depth of your sin. I want you to see how dark and twisted David is here. Look at this, verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. Okay? How was it sent? Sent by the hand of Uriah. He sends Uriah's death notice and hands it to him in a sealed envelope, and he takes it to Joab. Isn't that sick? That's the depth of his sin. He doesn't even realize that he's handing a man his death sentence. Uriah unknowingly is taking this death sentence to his commander. Look at verse 15. Um, David's command here, verse 15, says, In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. David commands the army that when the fighting is the worst, abandon this one man. So he's involving other people in his sin, commanding them to back up. Now, I'm not a soldier, but I know a lot of soldiers. And soldiers have this bond, right? They will die for one another. And this king commands them, no, pull back, let him die. Do you realize how difficult this would have been to hear? Why? Why Joab? And Joab had to cover up David's sins. Do you see the depth of this sin? And the story goes on to tell us that Uriah, that this happened, that the army pulled back and Uriah was killed in battle. And David is really not even that sad about it. This is one of his 30 mighty men. Uriah, as this faithful man, remained loyal to David till the end, yet David betrayed him and murders him. What depth of sin. So I want to, just to summarize, this is the path that David has taken. Five commands, that, by my count, in just a matter of days. David coveted his neighbor's wife. David stole another man's wife. David committed adultery with her. David bare false witness and lied to Uriah and attempted to cover up his sin. And David then committed murder by abandoning his most loyal 
of soldiers. Have you ever done something like this? Do you have a story like this? I hope not. Okay? But this is where sin takes you. So here's a question. In David's sin, where was God? In David's sin, where was God? After all, the sin of adultery, listen to the commands of God in the law. Adultery carried punishment of death, Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulterer shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So he shall purge the evil from Israel. So just from the adultery, David deserved death. What about murder? He committed murder, right? Well, that also carried the punishment of death. According to Genesis 9.6, whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Leviticus 24, 17. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. So David's in trouble. He has obviously done just two of these commands that will end his life. He deserves death. And between chapter 11 and chapter 12, scholars believe this is six months in time. And I want you to notice the very last verse of chapter 11 says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. See, God has not been mentioned at all in chapter 11 until this point. Very end, this thing he has done displeased the Lord. But David's mind, it's been covered up. Six months go by, nothing happens. Okay, I might have, actually, I've done a good thing. I took a man's wife who died in battle, and I brought her in as my wife. I'm actually taking care of her. What an honorable thing I am. Maybe he's gotten away with it. Where was God? Well, chapter 12 happens. And to summarize this, here's what happens six months later. The prophet Nathan comes to David in his sin, and he confronts him. What an honorable thing and a scary thing to do to confront a king. But he does it. And he tells a story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had every kind of sheep, every flock you can imagine. And the poor man had just one lamb. And this lamb, the Bible tells us here, was like a family pet. That's what it says that it was almost like a daughter to this man, is what the scripture says. And the rich man was throwing a party, but he didn't want to have any of his sheep be slaughtered for the party, and so he commanded that the poor man's sheep, one lamb, become his so he can sacrifice it for his party. Nathan tells this story to David, and David becomes irate and upset to the point where he tells Nathan, go get this man, for he shall die for that. Nobody does that in my kingdom. And verse 7 happens in chapter 12. I want you to look at that short verse. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Mic drop, right? You are the man. That's you, David. You deserve death. And you even see it for somebody else, but you don't see it for yourself. See, that's what happens. Sin blinds you to your own sin. See, a lot of times we look at the sin of other people, but we don't even see our own sin. And so Nathan goes on and talks about the punishments that God will have on him because of his sin. I'm not going to go through all of them, but he, I'll summarize them for you. He tells them that there will always be chaos and violence in your family because of the sin. And if you know the story of David, David's daughter Tamar would be raped by her half-brother. And his sons, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah will be slain. So his, his family will end up dying. His wives will also be taken and violated in broad daylight, which happens in chapter 16. Bathsheba's baby would also die. So there's punishment for his sin. David confronts his sin. 
But I want you to notice that one of the punishments that he deserved was not given. We see that David there um, confesses his sin. He recognizes his sin. But I want you to notice verse 14. So David says, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And verse 14 says, nevertheless, because by this deed you have uttered scorn to the Lord, the child who uh, is born, you shall die. Um, but verse, sorry, back to verse 13. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. That's staggering. After all these punishments, he did not get the punishment that he deserved. In fact, the Lord says that he put it away. Grace in the Old Testament. Looking forward to the sacrifice that would be for David and Jesus. So here's a question. Where was God and David's sin? I want you to notice David did not pursue relationship with God. I want you to see that God is the one who pursued after David. David's sin took him down a path he did not intend to go. And his, his eyes were focused on sin. It was God who tapped him on the shoulder through the prophet Nathan and convicted him of his sin. Right? It's God who acted. God was pursuing David. So here's the idea. When, where is God in David's sin? God is pursuing David. See, in my mind, where was God in my sin, in Nate's sin? God is walking away, shaking his head, eye roll. That's God. That's not what God was in David's sin. God was pursuing David. He was present with David. What did God do? He provided. He provided grace for David in his sin. He did not punish him with death. So we have the gospel in the Old Testament. And very, very quickly, I want to summarize the story. It's the same story in the New Testament with the prodigal son. You know the story. The younger son decided that he would rather have wealth. He would rather have the father's things rather than his father. And so he does, he does the unthinkable. He says, Father, I wish you were dead so that I could have your stuff. And so the father gives him what he wants. He gives him the inheritance. He goes and he spends it on sinful living. And he eventually ends up working in a pig farm and eating what the pigs eat. And he comes to his senses and he says, this is not what it's supposed to be like. Sin took me down a path I didn't want to go. I thought sin would be this grand party with everybody because I had all these possessions and I ended up, I'm in this pigsty. It took, I never thought I'd be here. In fact, the ser father's servants have more than I do. And he woke up and he said, maybe, just maybe, I could go back and ask to be a servant. So what does he do? He picks himself up. He comes to the end of himself. And what does he expect? He expects the father to not give him back even to be a servant. He expects this. He's probably practicing this speech of what he's going to possibly say. But what does he find? He finds the father, when he sees the son, running towards him, doesn't he? Running towards the son. The son can't even get out his speech that he had prepared to where the father was weeping, put a ring back on his finger, gave him the, the robe of a son, and told his servants to go kill the fattened calf because my, my son was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now he is found. He's throwing a party for him. He pursued the son. Do you see it? He ran after him. So where was God with the younger son? He was pursuing the younger son. But it's not just the younger son. We often forget about the older son. The Bible then tells us about the older son who was upset about this, wasn't he? And there's was a party and he didn't want to go in. So he came outside of the party. But I want you to notice what happens. Even in the old bro older brother's sin, the father pursued the older son. He, the Bible says that he came out to the older son and asked him to come in. 
So where is God in our sin? It's throughout the scriptures. God is not what we often think of, of turning his back and shaking his head in disappointment. He is actually pursuing us in our sin. It's the idea of when you're walking away, my idea now, is that when I'm, when I'm walking in sin and I recognize, I come to the end of, my, uh, of myself, and through the scriptures I recognize myself as leading down a path I do not want to go. And I repent, and I turn, and I'm thinking that he's going to be far off. And what I have to do then is recognize the Father is way far away. And i got to start doing some good stuff and make up ground for all the wrong things I've done. I've repented, but now i got to do a bunch of good stuff, and maybe I can catch back up to the Father. And then he will embrace me. That is an incorrect view of God. What you find instead is that when you're going this direction and there's repentance, you recognize that it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. It's God that acts, taps you on the shoulder, you turn, and instead of him being far away, he's right there. And he's been pursuing you this whole time. That's the idea of where God is in our sin. And what does he provide for you in sin? He provides for you his son. He's saying, I've been pursuing you because of what Jesus did on that cross. He paid for it. And so I'm running hard after you. That's going to take you down a path you don't want to go. And I've been here the whole time. That's where God is in our sin. That's where God is in our sin. So here's the application this morning. We're going to be done. We're going to sing a song. Where's God in our sin? He is present. He's pursuing us. He's not far off. He's not removing himself from us. When we repent, we turn, finding him right behind us. We'll not find a follower that's far off, but we must work in order to way to get back to him with good deeds. He's done the work that we could not do. So we just simply repent and find his loving arms right there. He's done the work. He's provided the way in Jesus. So here's the application. Christian, the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for believers because we become skewed in our thinking of who God is. We need to be brought back to the gospel. And this is the good news, Christian. Be reminded today of the gospel. You have sinned. Your sin is great. We just sang about it. But God has provided grace for you through Jesus Christ. You continue to sin. We continue to struggle while we're in these earthly bodies. So what he's calling for us to do is once again repent. He's tapping us on the shoulder. He's saying repent, turn. But what we need to remember, Christian, is the gospel. The good news is that when we turn and we repent, is that he, we don't have to do good deeds in order to catch back up with him. Okay, Because we do that, what ends up happening is we start saying, well, I've done a lot of good stuff. Paul says we begin to boast. Instead, what we need to be reminded of is that when we repent, we turn, we find his loving arms right there. He's never left us. So Christian, repent, turn from your sin, and find grace every single day. Maybe you're in this room or you're online and you're watching this say, well, I'm not a Christian. I'm a, I'm, I'm a sinner. Today, it's the same message. Hear the gospel that made for the first time. It's the same good news to you. Your sin is great. The Bible says that your sin is so great that um, there's nothing you can do about it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Your sin is great, but I want you to hear this. God is pursuing you. God is pursuing. He's been pursuing you. So the same message for you today. Repent. Turn. He's not disappointed in you. Turn, repent, 
of your sin, and you'll find a loving Father right when you turn around. He's ready to save you and offer you eternal life this morning. We're going to sing in just a moment after we pray. And I invite you, if you're in this room, and that's you, that for the first time you want to repent, you want to turn from your sin today, we can, we'd love to, to talk with you about, about that. If you're online today and you hear this message and you want to respond, you want to repent, but you don't know what that means, you don't know how to do that, you would like more information, you would like just some help in that, we have some pastors willing and ready to, to help you. So just in that comment section, just say, I want to know more. And we'll, we'll contact you. We'd love to speak with you. We'd love to, to lead you in, in the truth. You can find freedom today. You can be saved today. So wherever you are, whoever you are, hear this. God is pursuing you. Out of his goodness and out of his love for you, he is running after you in pursuit of you because of what Jesus has done in your place. It's good news today. Christian, it's good news for you. Today, repent. What do you need to repent of? What do you need to turn from today? Sin will take you down a path you never intended to go. So don't remain in your shame. Don't try to cover it up. Just turn. Let God be the one who covers you. There might be consequences of your sin, yes. Sin carries consequences. We do not just take advantage of grace. But turn. You turn this morning. So we're going to sing a song of repentance today. And Father, as we sing, as we dedicate this time to you, we pray, Lord, that you'll lead us all into commitment, whatever it is today, Lord. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen.